Hearsay, a podcast about law and legal issues for students and everyone else. Hi there, I'm Robert Corr, a lawyer and legal studies teacher, and in this first episode of Hearsay, I'll take a look at the international legal dispute that led to our Prime Minister being dubbed Mr Trumbull. I'll also talk about some of the other controversies surrounding Donald Trump's fledgling presidency, and I'll explain how they have some parallels with issues in Australia's legal system. Uh, But first, let's have a look at some things making legal news this week. Summary Matters Last week saw the commencement of the 2017 legal year, and it also saw a historic occasion as Justice Susan Kiefel was elevated from her position on the High Court bench to be sworn in as the first woman Chief Justice of the High Court. Now that's significant not only because of the milestone that it represents for women in the law and uh, in the judiciary, um, and it is important to have uh, that gender diversity in the senior ranks of the legal profession, uh, but also because of the unusual path that Susan Kiefel took Uh, in coming to the law. She's someone who dropped out of school at 14, um, didn't really have an idea what she wanted to do with her life, and she worked as a secretary going from job to job, ended up in a barrister's chambers, and they convinced her that she should give the law a go. Um, So she continued to work as a legal secretary while she finished school at uh, at night. Uh, She studied to become a barrister, and she ended up becoming a lawyer at the age of 21, having taken that very unusual path to get there. Now, as a teacher, I uh, I like this story because it's always good to have an example of somebody who didn't know what they were doing when they finished school, who got into the course that they were, they wanted to through an unusual route. Um, but but more importantly, I think it's very important that our judges have a range of different backgrounds, so that when cases come before them, they're drawing on that breadth of experience and that um, diverse understanding of how Australian society lives. Um, so that they're not coming from too narrow a background. So both in terms of her gender and in terms of her, um, I suppose, her career trajectory, um, it's really good to see Justice Kiefel uh, take that position as the Chief Justice. Um, In terms of what that means for the court, um, Professor Andrew Lynch from the University of New South Wales uh, has argued that um, Justice Kiefel is unlikely to kind of usher in uh, drastic change in the way the court functions. Um, just like the outgoing Chief Justice French, she supports joint judgments as a way that judges can assist with clarity. Uh, if judges write separate opinions about uh, the outcome of a case, even if they ultimately agree on, on the overall outcome of the case, if they use different reasoning in arriving at that conclusion, um, it undermines the value of that precedent for um, the parties in future cases or the public in general understanding what the legal position is. She also values joint judgments because of the efficiency that they provide. Um, it obviously takes a lot longer if every judge is writing a separate decision on a case uh, as opposed to one judge writing the first draft and other judges providing their input until they arrive at that shared position. So in that practical sense, it doesn't seem that very much will change under Susan Kiefel's leadership of the High Court. In terms of the content of the High Court's judgments, Justice Kiefel has been a proponent of what's called a proportionality test for constitutional implied freedoms cases, really drawing on European law. And a proportionality test is the idea that there should be guidelines for a court in assessing whether a law passed by a government that burdens 
uh, one of the implied freedoms, such as freedom of political communication, um, is valid or not. So that's an area where lawyers will be looking to see what kind of an impact our new Chief Justice Susan Kiefer will have on the High Court. Now, we also saw that afternoon the swearing-in of another Justice of the High Court, Justice James or Jamie Edelman, um, who is not the youngest uh, judge ever appointed to the High Court, but he's certainly the youngest for some time um, at 42. So it's, again, good to have somebody with a slightly different outlook uh, appointed to the bench. Uh, But owing to his young age or his relatively young age, Justice Edelman is going to be a fixture on the High Court bench for many years to come. Now, assuming he stays interested in the job for the full term, uh, it will be 2044 before he reaches the compulsory retirement age of 70. Meanwhile, in Victoria, the Andrews government continues to grapple with the youth justice system. Late last year, there were a series of riots in youth detention centres, in part because of the poor quality of those facilities, in part because understaffing has meant that the the detainees are placed on lockdown for significant periods, which kind of inflames tensions within the centre. And significant damage was done to those detention centres. The government's response was to put those teenagers into a maximum security prison where um, supposedly for their own safety, some of those children have been kept in solitary confinement for up to 23 hours a day. And in response to that, uh, to those conditions, the Human Rights Law Centre took legal action on behalf of those children in detention, arguing that the minister had breached the Victorian Charter of Human Rights and Responsibilities. Uh, And in the case in the Supreme Court, uh, the government argued that they had an emergency situation uh, and so they should be given some leeway. Justice Gregory Gard was not too kind to that argument. Um, the Age reported that he asked the government's lawyers, what do I do here? I've got a law here which it is customary to uphold. Do I take out my blue pen and write, but in emergency situations, we'll do the very best that we can? Um, ultimately, he ruled that the minister had breached the charter uh, by failing to consider alternatives and not really uh, taking into account the human rights of those children in making the decision to send them to the adult prison. Now, the government's response was to declare uh, a wing of the Barwon prison to be a youth uh, detention centre. Um, so those children are still held in the same facility, but it is now cons- it is now kind of designated as a youth detention centre. There have been continuing flare-ups in the in the old youth detention centres, and the government has announced that it intends to build a new purpose-built youth detention centre outside Werribee, uh, but it faces continued criticism from those human rights groups uh, over its handling of this situation. A $16 million dispute between work colleagues has settled out of court uh, on the first day of a Supreme Court trial. This was a case involving a group of couriers who had put together a a lottery syndicate, so they would all chip in $20 a week. Uh, One of their group would go and buy the tickets. Um, If they won, then the expectation was that they would share the prize. Now, one of the the fellow who bought the tickets on behalf of the group quit his job. Uh, He said he had a heart problem and disappeared. It was only when Tats, the lottery company, hired 
that courier company to deliver a bottle of champagne to the winner, that one of the colleagues discovered him in his large new house with a new convertible car in the driveway uh, and challenged him about had he won the lottery. Now, he claimed he had bought one ticket with his own money uh, and then he bought the group tickets later and it was his personal ticket that had won the $16 million. He offered the members of that syndicate, there was about 20 people involved. He offered them $4,000 to settle the case, which they rejected. Uh, And after their lawyer presented their opening to the court, they went away at lunchtime and came back to court and said they had reached uh, uh, terms to settle the case and the trial would no longer go ahead. Now, I imagine the offer at that point was somewhat higher than $4,000, but of course, uh, it's a confidential settlement, so we'll, we'll never know. The case was expected to be a test case on exactly what type of arrangement a lottery syndicate is and what the legal obligations of the members or participants in the syndicate were. So although this group is no doubt happy that they've settled their case without prolonged litigation, uh, we've lost that precedent value that the trial process could have provided us. And staying with the Supreme Court, the new legal year has seen the Supreme Court Uh, overhaul its practice note system. A practice note is um, a guideline that the court issues about how it expects litigation to be conducted uh, in the court. So it's sort of how the the rules are to be practically implemented. One of the interesting new rules in the practice notes that they've introduced is for technology in civil matters. And they've set a new requirement that dealings in hard copies are to be the exception rather than the rule in all aspects of civil litigation in court. Uh, And they've said that increasing costs by failing to use technology will be treated as a breach of the overarching obligations that uh, lawyers have to the court. So that is backing up that new requirement with a bit of a threat to the lawyers that they need to comply with or they could have costs awarded against the lawyers personally rather than against the clients. Examination in Chief Let's turn now to our main uh, topic for this episode. Last week, the White House Press Secretary, Sean Spicer, referred to the Australian Prime Minister as Mr. Trumbull. Um, Now, you might be wondering, well, why was the United States White House talking about our Prime Minister to begin with? And it's actually a legal issue uh, that brought that topic um, to the press conference. Uh, And I'll come back to that uh, in a moment. But what I thought might be interesting is to have a look at some of the controversies that have surrounded the early days of the Trump presidency, and some of the parallels to Australia's legal system and, and uh, political system. And there were a couple of things that really stood out to me in the first couple of weeks. Uh, the first was uh, about the legitimacy of the Trump presidency, given that uh, he, he in fact lost the popular vote, um, but he still managed to hold office. Uh, we have a, an impression, I think, because of the... Um, the nature of the American electoral electoral uh, season as a popularity contest between the presidential candidates from the two major parties, um, that it is a popular election, but in fact they have an, a, an electoral college system. So uh, voters who wanted to vote for Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton or one of the, the um, minor candidates um, are actually voting for a representative who will then attend the electoral college and cast a vote within that electoral college on their behalf for the candidate for presidency. So it's an indirect election system. Now, that's not too dissimilar from 
uh, our electoral system, electing a representative to parliament, and then within the parliament, that's where we um, choose the, the, the winning party and then they choose their, their leader. But it does lead to this problem of um, there potentially being a gap between the popular vote and the electoral college vote. So in the, the most recent US election, um, in fact, 2.9 more people voted for Hillary Clinton than for Donald Trump. Um, that's a 2% margin. So um, Hillary Clinton was significantly more popular. Um, nearly 3 million people more voted for her than for Donald Trump, and yet she somehow still lost the presidency. Uh, so there is this question of legitimacy, and I think it's, it seems to have been a sore point for um, President Trump um, uh, in, the, in the early days of the presidency. But Australia has the same problem. In fact, the problem here may be more significant. Um, electoral analyst Peter Brent uh, wrote an interesting article on Inside Story about this. Um, and he says, since the first American presidential election in 1788, only five vote losers have emerged victorious. In Australia, we've had five such outcomes at the federal level since the emergence of the two-party system around 1910. In 1954, 1961, 1969, 1990, and 1998. So this problem uh, arises because voters for one party or the other might be unusually concentrated uh, in a small number of electorates. So you might have, let's say there are, are three electorates, and in two of those electorates, candidate A wins or party A wins a very slim majority, but they hold that seat. And in the third electorate, an overwhelming majority votes for the other candidate. Now, when you look at the popular vote and average it over the whole population, you would look and say, okay, candidate B is clearly the more popular choice. Um, but because of where their supporters are located, uh, they find it difficult to win the electorates. So in Australia, they, they can't win the electorates the seats in parliament that they need to um, hold government, um, or in the presidential context, the US presidential context, they can't win the electoral college seats that they need. Um, now, this tends to, to occur where we have um, parties that are more popular in, you know, one party more popular in rural areas, one pop party more popular in urban areas. And so there's a different concentration of voters in those, um, in those different electorates. So. Um, it's really hard to draw electorates that make geographic sense so that the, the people are kind of grouped in a way that they feel like they have something in common with their, um, their fellow voters. Um, but to then also try to spread out voters in a, in a fair way, which is, you know, what does that even mean, um, is really difficult. Now, in South Australia, in 1991, they amended their state constitution to require that electoral boundaries are drawn uh, so that they are fair to prospective candidates and groups of candidates so that if candidates of a particular group attract more than 50% of the popular vote, they'll be elected in sufficient numbers to enable a government to be formed. So their constitution now requires their elector electoral commission to try to match the popular vote with the, um, the, the effectively the electoral college vote or the, par the, the parliamentary uh, representation as closely as possible. Uh, but Recently, in 2014, the South Australian government was elected after losing the two-party preferred vote by a 6% margin. So it's just very difficult 
Um, when you have these sort of big differences in concentration of support for one party or the other um, to make sure that the popular vote wins out in the end. All right, returning to Mr. Trumbull, uh, to explain how the White House ended up calling him that, we, uh, we need to talk about our refugees. And um, you're probably aware that Australia's current policy on uh, asylum seekers who arrive by boat uh, is to intercept them at sea um, to turn those boats back if possible, um, if not to uh, to transfer those people to detention centres on Nauru and um, on Manus Island, which is a, a part of Papua New Guinea. So Australia claims that once we've done that, that we've transferred responsibility for those asylum seekers to those nations. Um, but somehow we still managed to veto an offer by New Zealand to resettle 150 of those uh, asylum seekers. So Malcolm Turnbull said um, allowing them to go to New Zealand would be a backdoor way to get into Australia and would have been a green light to people smugglers. And he said we can't afford to let empathy cloud our judgment on these issues. So, uh, you know, it, it it's a little bit confusing to me how we can um, claim that really this is a matter for Nauru and PNG, but then at the same time uh, we're controlling the fate of those those refugees. The Obama administration uh, late last year agreed to take a number of those refugees, about 1,200 or 1,250 refugees from those offshore detention camps shortly before the presidential election. Um, And this is a policy that at the time people were concerned, you know, how would the election impact on that? And after Trump was elected, there was a a real question about whether he would um, uphold that agreement but we were assured that you know we have this we have this special relationship between Australia and the United States um, and that they would only enter an agreement like that in good faith um, but of course Donald Trump has now issued an executive order on immigration and there are real concerns from the Australian government in the in the wake of that that this would impact on that um, resettlement deal now, an executive order is what we, we might look at in Australia as a regulation or, or a statutory instrument, uh, which is where the executive government is given some authority to kind of fill in the blanks between the acts of Congress or of Parliament uh, for the day-to-day administration of the law. So um, in the American immigration context, they have immigration law that, that specifically gives the power to the president to refuse entry into the United States of any class of alien. Um, an alien is, is an old-fashioned word that we use to describe um, non-citizens. So to refuse access to um, any class of non-citizens that the president chooses to. So Donald Trump, during the election campaign, had made a promise to ban Muslim uh, entry into America for a period until we can get it under control. Now he didn't really specify how or um, what that what that would look like. But one of his first acts as president was to impose a 120 day moratorium, um, so a, a temporary halt to uh, entry into the country for people who are nationals of seven uh, seven countries that he listed. Now a, a lot of the refugees are, uh, in our detention camps are from some of those uh, seven countries. So there was concern, immediate concern from Australia's point of view about, well, what is going to happen to the deal that we struck if there's this this ban? Now, the text of the executive order included a clause 
that said the Secretaries of State and Homeland Security would be given power to make an exception to the ban when admitting the person would enable the United States to conform its conduct to a pre-existing international agreement. So Donald Trump and um, Prime Minister Turnbull had a phone conversation. Um, the details of that conversation have turned out to be controversial. Uh, part of the, the call was uh, for Malcolm Turnbull to get an assurance from Donald Trump that, um, the, the, that the deal entered by the Obama administration would be um, upheld. Um, he came out publicly and told the Australian press that he'd extracted this concession from Donald Trump. And Donald Trump then tweeted, uh, do you believe it? The Obama administration agreed to take thousands of illegal immigrants from Australia. Why? I will study this dumb deal. Now, um, he followed that up by making comments that we had one instance in Australia. I have a lot of respect for Australia. I love Australia as a country, but we had a problem where, for whatever reason, President Obama said that they were going to take probably well over a thousand illegal immigrants who were in prisons. They were going to bring them and take them into this country. And I just said, why? So this phone call has become uh, a bit of an international um, diplomatic uh, incident. Um, people wanting to know, well, why would Donald Trump talk to Australia like that? Um, Malcolm Turnbull saying, well, we got the, we got the um, concession. Um, and Donald Trump obviously wanting to look tough on his uh, immigration ban and want to make sure people don't think there are exceptions to the rule, has said, well, you know, we have to honour our pre-existing commitments, but we're going to introduce extreme vetting for these people. So these are people who have, they're not illegal immigrants as, as his public language um, claimed, they have been accepted by the United Nations as genuine refugees, and they're now kind of sitting um, in these island countries waiting for uh, resettlement. Um, so there's sort of this public relations exercise of both sides claiming to have, have won a victory. And of course, this is where the White House press secretary comes out to try to smooth things over and calls our Prime Minister Malcolm Trumbull. Now, that's a bit of a, a funny punchline, but I think there is a serious issue here, and that is what happens to asylum seekers and, and genuine refugees when all of the uh, developed countries that really have the capacity to absorb refugees into their, uh, into their communities, when they all pull up the drawbridge, when Australia says, no, they're not welcome here, when America says, no, they're not welcome here, and then they're left to uh, live in small, poor, um, developing countries, um, how is that a, an acceptable outcome? And um, how can the law require governments to uphold their obligations under the Refugee Convention? So the next legal issue that comes out of uh, the Donald Trump's executive order is about really uh, the legality of that order. Um, it used the threat of terrorism to ban the nationals of those seven Muslim-majority countries from entering the United States. And during the campaign, uh, Donald Trump had promised a total and complete shutdown of Mus Muslims entering the United States. And when he made those comments during the campaign, uh, legal experts warned that this would quite possibly be a violation of the Constitution and that he wouldn't have the power to do this. Um, and Rudy Giuliani, just after the executive order was signed, uh, Rudy Giuliani, a former mayor of New York, a member of Trump's campaign team, uh, went on Fox News and, uh, and said, I'll tell you the whole history of it. When he first announced it, he said, Muslim ban. He called me up. He said, put a commission together. Show me the right way to do it legally. 
Um, now, that raises the question of what is the real purpose of this uh, ban? Is it to address the threat of terrorism or is it to address uh, Islamic immigration to Australia? Now, the US Attorney General, Sally Yates, thought that um, looking at the executive order, Rudy Giuliani had failed to, um, to do it legally. And ironically, his admission that, that he was asked, I want a Muslim ban, let's do it legally, uh, might make it actually easier to prove that there was that um, ulterior purpose. Now, the Attorney General is the chief lawyer for the US and is the head of the Justice Department, which does legal work for the government. So um, the Attorney General, Sally Yates, she was an Obama appointee because Donald Trump hasn't yet appointed a replacement for her. Um, she ordered the Justice Department lawyers not to defend any challenge to that executive order um, on constitutional grounds. So if somebody um, uh, was set to be deported or refused access to the country and they challenged the legality of that, she ordered her uh, government lawyers not to argue that the executive order was constitutional. And she said... I am responsible for ensuring that the positions we take in court remain consistent with the institution's solemn obligation to always seek justice and stand for what's right. At present, I'm not convinced that the defense of the executive order is consistent with these responsibilities, nor am I convinced that the executive order is lawful. Now, Donald Trump immediately sacked her, um, and that's, that's his right. So just as our governor general, on the advice of the prime minister, has the right to sack a, um, a minister in the government, the American president has the right to sack uh, a minister if he's not happy with how they perform their job. But what this really reminded me of was a, a, dis a complicated legal dispute that arose last year, a clash between our attorney general and the Solicitor General, Justin Gleeson. Now, in Australia, the Attorney General is a member of Parliament and a minister. So much of the legal work that would be done by the United States Attorney General uh, is in, in Australia is done by uh, someone called the, the Solicitor General. And the Solicitor General here is an independent statutory office holder. So it's created by a statute, there's a Solicitor General Act, and it creates this office uh, people are appointed to it for a fixed term and they can't be sacked by the Attorney General. And now that's um, an important safeguard in our system because it ensures that the legal advice being given uh, on behalf of the government to government departments um, is not politically motivated because um, the Attorney General, if they're a member of parliament, they're obviously a politician as well. And we want to make sure that that legal advice is independent of those political considerations. So... Throughout last year, there was a, a sort of a running battle between the Attorney General and the Solicitor General, um, uh, ultimately le leading to the Solicitor General being um, more or less forced to, to resign his position. Um, and it all starts a long time ago. There was a big corporate collapse in Western Australia. Um, uh, there's been really long-running litigation for decades now trying to untangle the aftermath of that uh, collapse. And um, governments and banks were owed a lot of money. Um, a lot of the money was gone. So there was a dispute about who would get what. And the WA government and the Commonwealth Tax Office were two of the main creditors of this company. So in order to cut short the ongoing litigation, the Western Australian Parliament passed an act that seized what was left of the companies and allowed the WA government to redistribute the money however it thought was fair. So this included seizing the money that would repay the company's tax debt. 
And the WA Treasurer told the WA Parliament that he had an agreement from the Commonwealth that they would not challenge the legality of this WA law. Uh, the Australian Tax Office obviously was concerned that they wouldn't get their, uh, their money back. And it's about a billion dollars. You know, we're not talking about um, small change here. Um, so the Tax Office sought advice from the Solicitor General uh, and he advised that the WA law was probably un invalid under Section 109 of the Constitution because it's inconsistent with Commonwealth laws about the collection of taxes. So other, other people involved in the case um, brought a legal challenge, and obviously the tax office became involved in that. And there are claims that the Attorney General George Brandis uh, pressured uh, the Solicitor General, Justin Gleeson, not to present the argument in the High Court. So the claim is that because WA had reached this political agreement that the Commonwealth would essentially allow that WA law to stand regardless of whether it was legally valid, um, and so potentially that means WA keeps a, a billion dollars that should rightfully go to the Australian tax office. Now, it's important to note that the Attorney General denies that he put any pressure on the Solicitor General, and ultimately the Australian tax office um, made a submission to the High Court and raised this Section 109 inconsistency argument. Um, and the High Court ultimately uh, accepted that that was, that was correct, that the WA law was inconsistent with Commonwealth tax law, and so under Section 109 of the Constitution, it was invalid. Now, WA was furious about this uh, and apparently complained to George Brandis. And Shortly after this, the Attorney General then passed a new regulation. So, you know, quite similar in a sense to the executive order passed by Donald Trump or signed by Donald Trump. So this new regulation said that the Solicitor General could not advise any government agency without getting permission from the Attorney General first. Um, and there was a, a, a another controversy about that that led to a Senate inquiry. And that Senate inquiry found that, that George Brandis had misled the Senate about the, the reason um, and the nature of the regulation that he had passed, and particularly about whether he had actually consulted the Solicitor General before making that, that new regulation. The Solicitor General says he was never asked. The Attorney General says, well, I did discuss it with you. And the Senate believes the Solicitor General. But by that point, uh, the relationship breakdown between the Attorney General and the Solicitor General was too significant, and Justin Gleeson resigned, saying that um, it was the right thing to do for the institution because um, it was too important, the work was too important to be bogged down in these political disputes. Um, so George Brandis now faces a second Senate inquiry into what, you know, what went on with the, was there an agreement with WA? Did he put pressure on the Solicitor General to mislead the High Court um, by omission, and I suppose we'll have to wait and see what the outcome of that inquiry is. But the central issue, um, or the the similarity that I wanted to to um, draw attention to, is really this this issue of um, well, to what extent is uh, a government lawyer like the U.S. Attorney General or like the Australian Solicitor General, to what extent are they a barrister who is working for a client? So they providing legal advice, and that advice can either be accepted or uh, rejected by the client, and ultimately the arguments they make in court are under instruction from their client. So can a politician direct um, a government lawyer, a public servant, to present an argument to the court that that uh, public servant be sincerely believes uh, is wrong? Or 
does that lawyer, does the Solicitor General uh, owe their duty to the Australian public and to the court to present honestly their sincere belief about the correct legal position? Um, and it's an interesting tension because the Solicitor General is supposed to be independent of politics, um, uh, but they are also acting in, in many ways as a barrister for the government. Um, and I don't think this tension really has been adequately resolved because the Solicitor General clearly believed that his duty went beyond doing what the politician told him to do, um, and yet he has resigned from that office. Um, so uh, perhaps this is something that the Senate inquiry will address uh, and provide um, some uh, advice on what they think the role of the Solicitor General uh, ought to be. Um, but it is an interesting problem for the law uh, where it kind of intersects with the political interests of a government of the day. Now, while all of that was going on, uh, Donald Trump's executive order was put into immediate effect uh, at airports around the country. And that led to confused and confusing scenes uh, because the, the exact scope of the order wasn't uh, immediately apparent even to the people who were uh, supposed to be uh, implementing it. Um, the, exec the, executive, the executive order applied um, not only to people who are sort of making applications to come to the US, but it's about entry to the US. And so it even applied to people who were already in the air uh, en route to the United States when these new rules were introduced. And so they turned up in the United States holding a valid visa, uh, but they found that they were detained at the airport when they arrived because uh, in the meantime, that, uh, that visa was, was essentially ordered not to be uh, accepted. Uh, one man at the Washington DC airport was held for an hour and interrogated because he had visited Iran in 2014 to attend a human rights conference. And he was released after an hour when they realized that he was a former prime minister of Norway. And so he probably wasn't uh, a terrorist threat. Um, permanent residents of the United States um, who, are, who are colloquially called green card holders because the, the paperwork that they require to be a permanent resident is, uh, is, a, green, is a green card uh, were also affected even if they had been law-abiding residents of the United States for years. So if someone had lived and worked in the United States for a decade, they went overseas to visit family abroad, uh, and they're now stuck overseas because the, the ban on entry to the United States applies irrespective of uh, what status their visa is. So we saw huge protests swarming uh, the airports, um, and we also saw a lot of lawyers descend on the airports to provide pro bono assistance for people who were detained. I saw one claim that um, over half of the immigration lawyers in one city had attended the airport to try to help uh, process the paperwork to get um, uh, applications into court to challenge the detention of people who had valid visas. And one group that provided uh, pro bono assistance to affected people is the American Civil Liberties Union, which is a, a community organization uh, that defends people's civil rights and uh, that, that often provides legal assistance and runs kind of test cases uh, on behalf of uh, civil rights or human rights uh, issues. And they took a, a claim to a federal court judge on behalf of a group of um, 
of people who held valid visas and were being detained at an airport and they were seeking a temporary restraining order to temporarily halt any action taken by the federal government to enforce the executive order. Um, this is what we would call a, a temporary or an interlocutory injunction. So they're not asking the judge to make a final decision about whether or not the executive order is valid. But what they're saying is until we have the, an opportunity to have the full argument in court that um, the government should be prevented from deporting people in the meantime. So the judge has to first accept that there is an arguable case. And in this case, they, they, uh, they found that there, were, there are issues uh, constitutional issues that might put the executive order in doubt. Um, but the main kind of argument about whether an interlocutory injunction should be issued is what we call a balance of convenience test, which is to say um, who would be more inconvenienced by either giving the injunction or not giving the injunction. And in this case, the, the judge said, well, um, if these people are correct, if these people are right that the, the executive order is not valid, but they have been deported in the meantime, it's far more difficult for them to then uphold their legal rights because they're no longer in the country. Whereas if the executive order is temporarily put on hold, we have a court case and it's held to be valid, well, it's not too late for the American government to enforce the executive order at that later date. So the judge in this case, in this early case, found that the balance of convenience lay in favour of granting that restraining order or that stay. So there were a series of cases along the same lines about different groups of people. Uh, in one case, um, an Iranian man was deported while the court was hearing his lawyer's application. So they were in court saying, please, you know, we need a temporary injunction to halt this. And while his lawyers were in court, the government deported him. Now, the court was um, not impressed by the way that the government had... Um, uh, had acted in that situation and the court order said before the court could rule on the temporary restraining order he was placed on a flight to Dubai to be removed to Iran and the court ordered respondents shall transport petitioner back to the United States and admit him under the terms of his previously approved visa pending the final hearing so they've been ordered not only to to stop enforcing it but in this case to go and get this this man return him to the United States uh, because they had tried to circumvent the court process by um, uh, deporting him while the court was hearing the application. However, there were a lot of reports of uh, Customs and Border Protection agents ignoring court orders and continuing to detain and even to deport people after the stay had been initially granted. That, uh, in fact, members of Congress had turned up at an airport and said, look, here's a copy of the court order. Um, do not, you know, you must release these people. And the Customs and Border Protection said, go away. Um, we're not interested in that. Which raises a really difficult problem for our legal system, um, both in the US and in Australia, which is about the separation of powers. When a person is uh, arrested and is uh, refused bail, so they're being held on remand, um, the power to hold them in custody comes from a warrant issued by the court. So, uh, for example, the magistrate's court has the power to issue a, a remand warrant where bail is refused. And that warrant authorises um, the commissioner of police, the corrections department or the Department of Human Services to hold a person in custody for the period specified or in the circumstances described in the warrant. So 
a condition of holding that person in custody is that they have to comply with those conditions. And those conditions will always include a requirement that the person be returned to court for their subsequent hearing, because ultimately they're being held on remand for the purposes of that hearing. So the court will say, you can hold this person in custody, but they must be returned to court for the next hearing. Recently, the courts have been dealing with a problem whereby corrections has been systematically failing to bring people to court for their hearings, particularly for bail hearings, uh, blaming the logistical problems that are caused by overcrowding in the prisons. And it's gotten to the point where judges are releasing people from custody because they cannot, um, they cannot be certain that the corrections department will actually uh, uphold their legal obligations. Uh, one judge told the Age newspaper last year, I'm releasing people, not high risk, but I'm releasing them on bail because I can't guarantee they'll appear. Um, we're at the point where the courts are saying uh, they cannot, ex they cannot um, take for granted that the executive government will actually uh, implement the law uh, and bring people to court um, for future hearings. Now, the court's weapon in this um, situation has been to award legal costs against the Department of Corrections. So when you've got a, a court hearing scheduled, you've got the prosecutors there, the defence lawyer is there, the judge is there, court security, uh, all the rest of it, uh, but the prisoner isn't brought to court, so they can't go ahead with the hearing. Uh, the, the court has been awarding those legal costs against uh, the Department of Corrections because it's their it's their fault that the, uh, the that everybody's time has been uh, has been wasted. Um, and in the past few years, uh, the department has been um, ordered to pay nearly five hundred thousand dollars for these wasted legal hearings. The idea there is to uh, create a financial incentive um, for the government to to address this problem. Um, now, the government says that it's improving video links, so they're going to um, reduce the need to bring prisoners physically to the court to hold some of these, particularly the, the sort of the regular routine directions hearings and those sorts of things. Um, so there may not be a, as much of a need to physically transport them to court. Um, but this, you know, this has been going on for years now, and it does raise that question, what do we do in our legal system if the executive branch simply... Uh, ignores the orders of the judicial branch because judges don't have the capacity to enforce their orders directly. Uh, they make an order, but they rely on the executive to actually put that into effect. So if the executive won't do that, um, where does that leave the separation of powers? Now, back in the US, uh, it seems that it, it was a temporary um, confusion, perhaps, that led to those border uh, border agents ignoring those initial court orders, and um, the the debate over whether they're legitimate has moved back to the courts. There's been a series of hearings. Uh, the government has tried to overturn the um, temporary injunction. Um, you know, there's a whole series of injunctions, but the the Trump administration seems to accept that this is a decision that needs to be made in the courts, and it's not something that they can just ignore. Um, so hopefully. Uh, we won't deal with that constitutional crisis that would arise uh, if they began to ignore court orders. Address and reply. One thing I'd like to do in future episodes of Hearsay is give the audience an opportunity to participate. 
Um, and I'd like to, to hear your comments, um, whether you agree or disagree with something I've said uh, on this episode, whether you've got uh, an interesting observation that you'd like to make, a suggestion for future topics, or a question that you think I might be able to help answer. There are a number of ways that you can get in touch with the podcast. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter at HearsayCast. Uh, you can visit our website, hearsaypodcast.com, and leave a comment on uh, a particular episode. Uh, there's also a link there to leave a, a short voice message if you'd like to hear your voice on a future episode. Uh, you can email me. It's robert at hearsaypodcast.com. So please do get in touch. Uh, I hope to hear from you soon, and uh, I look forward to including your feedback in future episodes. Planet Friend. Each episode, I'd, I'd like to share with you um, uh, my suggestion for another resource, another website, another organization, perhaps a, another podcast um, that I think people who are passionate about the law and legal issues uh, might also be interested in. And the first recommendation that I'm going to make is for another podcast. Um, it's, it's called Curtain the Podcast. That's C-U-R-T-A-I-N, the podcast. And Curtain is the nickname of uh, an Aboriginal man named Kevin Henry, who was convicted of murder in Queensland in 1992. And Curtain the Podcast is produced by Amy McGuire, a, a journalist who, who specialises in Indigenous issues, and Martin Hodgson, who is a lawyer for the Foreign Prisoner Support Service, but who is uh, acting, um, I guess, on a pro bono basis investigating um, the case of Kevin Henry. Uh, the podcast kind of puts the argument that um, Kevin Henry may well be innocent, but at the very least that he didn't receive a fair trial. Uh, they reanalyze re the evidence. Uh, they look at his confession or, or his supposed confession. They, they um, uh, talk about the, the lack of forensic evidence, the alternatives that the police haven't investigated, and they question really whether the same approach would have been taken uh, by the police, by the courts, uh, for a non-Aboriginal suspect or for a non-Aboriginal victim, for that matter. Um, and they're really challenging um, the legal system to say, you know, is, is, is there equality between the way Aboriginal people and the way non-Aboriginal people are treated within the system, using this case of Kevin Henry um, to highlight those differences. So if you're interested in criminal justice, if you're interested in um, forensic science or um, in the court process or social justice issues, um, I'd recommend give Curtain the Podcast a go. And you can find that at curtainthepodcast.wordpress.com. Adjournment. All right, I'll close by leaving you with a lighthearted story from uh, the legal news in the last couple of weeks. And this one comes from Spanish News Today. And they report that a, a Spanish teenager was caught uh, having broken into a hair salon. Um, he stole 600 euros and a hairdryer. Uh, the judge in that case was considering ordering 100 hours of community service. Um, but he reconsidered that sentence when, during the plea and mitigation, he heard that the young man was ironically undertaking a hairdressing course um, while he stole from uh, that hair salon. So instead of community service, the judge sentenced him to complete the hairdressing course and to prove it, to prove that he'd taken it seriously, to return to court and give the judge a haircut. See you next time. Mm.
If you have comments, questions, or suggestions for future topics, I'd love to hear from you. There are a few ways you can reach me. Leave a comment on the website, send me an email at robert at hearsaypodcast.com, say hi to at hearsaycast on Twitter, or you can also leave a voice message on the website. That's hearsaypodcast.com.